T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Good evening, everyone. It is 79 degrees in the Twin Cities. Time to talk politics. And my goodness, there is an awful lot to talk about. 808 in the Twin Cities. I'm joined by now by Stephen Shear. He's a former professor of political science at Carleton College. He continues to write uh, books and articles on the subject and is an expert on the state of Minnesota. And also, I would think uh, I, I'd put you in the category of, of a presidential historian. Maybe well, I'll, I, I'll accept that. OK, <laughs> well, you certainly are um, more than knowledgeable about that. Uh, I have to ask you. I, you know, and I was actually just talking with with a caller about this. I, I have only covered President Trump's speeches twice. One was this, the really extraordinary speech he gave two days before the election at the airport mm-hmm. here. Yeah, and then this is then there was the one in Duluth, and the one at the airport. I remember it was a Sunday morning, and it, I had just gotten off, and I thought, you know, I th- I'm just going to check this out. And one of the things that I I remember arriving over there with the crew that was actually doing the story and people were actually leaving their cars on sort of the grassy edges of Highway 77 and jumping over the fences to get into this rally. (laughs) And and I thought, you know, I thought, you know, there's that old song, the Sissy song, something's happening here. You know, I was like, something's happening here. And then I also was struck. I remember, first of all, it was packed, but I also was struck by how many women there were. And this was in the aftermath. Right. I mean, it was ha- that with crowd was half women. I mean, normally when you go to an event, you expect to have half women there, mm-hmm. and, and that's exactly what it was. What was so striking, I thought, about this event um, was how for how passionate the people at that rally were, how much they really love Donald Trump, yeah. and, and how much they identify with him, and. and how much he really ate up this feedback. I mean, he seemed to be enjoying every single moment of it. Uh, you know, he just sat there and let them applaud for, you know, 20 minutes. And, and then then he talked about, you know, all the problems. I mean, some, some of the tangents he went off on were just so remarkable. <laughs> and, and, you know, mostly I would say it was, you know, it was Duluth, the Iron Range. I mean, it's it's good – um, you know, wonderful Minnesotans, most of them, you know, blue collar, I mean, working class in the most part. But I, I think you, you saw a lot of people, um, you know, a lot of military folks. Uh, and, you know, you, you heard him at one point drop lines about, um, you know, talking about the elites. And he goes, well, you know, I'm an elite. You know, I'm I'm richer than everybody else. Yeah. And I've got I've got a bigger apartment and I've got more of this and I've got elected president. <laughs> And the crowd loved it. They loved it. Um, you know, you really have studied the presidency. And uh, what is your take here? Because you, you've really looked, looked at the lives of people, these men who have, have gotten to this level. It takes um, really an extraordinary person to become president. But it's just – it was fascinating to me. Oh, it's unique, uh, really, in the history of the presidency, at least in the history of the modern presidency, to have someone with no political experience and basically a career as a celebrity, uh, someone who's been well-known 
in the public for decades now, uh, making a transition into the White House like this. We've never seen anything like it, Esme. Uh, now, I do think there is a Minnesota parallel here, and I think it's Jesse Ventura. Jesse, you know, had minimal political experience before he ran for governor. But well, he was the mayor of Brooklyn Right. Park? But but the the key is he's a celebrity. Uh, right. You know, right. I mean, his career right. was that of a celebrity. And uh, he clearly uh, communicated in unconventional ways, just like Trump do, does, uh, in a way that resonated with a lot of people in a very intense fashion to the point where they would vote for him, even though he was not a major party candidate. I'm talking about Jesse. Right. So um, I think there are a number of... Uh, uh, th- there is evidence, is what I'm saying is there's evidence in Minnesota political history that personalities of this sort can really gain traction in Minnesota politics. We saw it with Jesse. I think Paul Wellstone had some of that as well. And I think Trump is the latest example. Right. Well, and, and obviously, and, and he, he, he brought it up about four or five times that he almost won Minnesota. Yeah. And he said, you know, oh, but for one more visit, I, maybe that would have been the case. You know, he really didn't do. And I remember at, at the airport visit two days before the election, 2016, he said, you know, all my advisors think I'm crazy for coming here. Uh, but, you know, I, I was struck by that. But I was struck. And I think you, you're, you're mentioning of, of celebrity. I think that is something um that's sort of the way he came out, sort of the way kind of a rock star comes out. Yeah, yeah. And there are people who identify with him as a celebrity, as a personality that is sort of outsized, you know, uh, bigger than life. And I think that really – but shares their values and their orientation. So he's sort of the uh, – the, uh, uh, I don't know how to put it, <laughs> the, the spokesperson for them who is also an example of someone who has become wildly successful while sharing their values. And that that's pretty attractive to a lot of people. Right. And, and it's just, um, you know, as I said, I, the crowd could not have been more enthusiastic. I mean, I just it's just the passion of which they supported him was just something that um, – there's an intensity to it, yeah, and and yeah. and you know I think that was one of the things that people talked about in 2016, the enthusiasm gap with Hillary Clinton, because people weren't passionate about her the way they were about Barack Obama. It was difficult to she wasn't very relatable. But you know one of the things he talked about and he brought out um, you know Tom Emmer, he brought out a Congressman from Wisconsin, Sean Duffy, mm-hmm. uh, he brought out uh, Congressman Jason Lewis, he brought out of course. Um, uh, the the gentleman that he was campaigning for, uh, Pete Stauber, who's a Stauber, county commissioner, yeah. mm-hmm. a former um, hockey, was, I think he was he was a professional hockey player uh, in the Detroit Red Wings uh, organization, a former police officer, mm-hmm. uh, county, some, commissioner. county commissioner, yeah. um, but but they talked about the red wave and and that they were going to have a red wave here. And obviously that eighth district, mm-hmm. I mean, you, you got to think about Pete Stauber. I mean. Five months ago, he was this a Republican running against a two-term incumbent. Yeah, and suddenly the incumbent drops out, and you know, we're talking about Rick Nolan, and suddenly the president comes to campaign for you. Right. Well, not only that, but you know, the the president uh, called him and said, 
what can I do for you? <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, which is pretty unusual. Not every congressional candidate gets a call personally from the president saying, what can I do for you? So this tells you what a high priority uh, President Trump puts on the 8th District in Minnesota for the 2018 election. And is some of that because it, it's it's a district that's changed parties mm-hmm. uh, three times in the last six years. Mm-hmm. How unusual is that? Well, it's very unusual because uh, for decades, first was John Blatnick and then Jim Oberstar. It was a reliable Democratic district. Of course, that was back in the heyday of uh, the range with heavy employment, uh, high levels of unionization, and a working-class Democratic Party orientation that uh, made it a solid uh, Democratic district. So what happens is the range depopulates, uh, the jobs go away, uh, labor becomes weaker, uh, and the district geographically expands southward all the way down to right. Elk River and Cambridge. Right. You know. At the edge of the uh, exurbs of the metro, and then westward, and those west and southern counties are more Republican than the traditional eighth district was. Right, and and that's something uh, you know. And I was talking to Pete Stauber's um, uh, campaign person. Uh, I think it was just last week or a couple of weeks ago, and she was explaining that by their calculations, sixty percent of the television market of the eighth district. Is is the Minneapolis and St. Paul media market? Isn't that remarkable? Yeah, which I, I, I you know, I was, I was a little. I thought it was maybe sixty forty the other way around. Yeah. Um, and so, anyway, but um, you know, your thoughts about the chance that there could be a red wave, uh, because I think you know, mm-hmm. the calculus, at least, certainly much more. So I think six months ago was that there's going to be a blue, blue wave, wave, and if yeah. you talk to people like Congress Keith Ellison. He'll tell you there is going to be a blue wave. But what are your thoughts about this? Well, uh, there are several things to sort through here. Um, First, uh, it's still early. (laughs) You know, I mean, November is still several months away. And what will be on the public? You mean more stuff could happen? (laughs) Uh, Well, you see, Trump has this strategy of constantly presenting new topics to the media, you know, and usually in a pugnacious way. Uh, So, you know, for example, this week, uh, all the immigration difficulties of the administration, and they were pretty much a mess, uh, will probably be uh, 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 passed by now by the president as he tweets about something else and gets involved in some some other controversy. But but these these uh, about faces don't don't seem to be hurting him at all with his base. I mean, this was a dramatic about face. He defended the separation of families and children repeatedly and then did an about face that morning that he was in Duluth and and the crowd still went wild. Well, and I think one of the big things that Trump does is uh, pugnaciously attack his opponents, in this case, the media, the Fake news, you know, and he comes up with these very memorable phrases, you know, uh, fake news media uh, that he continually hammers on with his tweets and in his talk. And uh, I think in, in certain parts of the media, they take the bait and uh, get uh, frenetic in their attacks on the president, which he then can use to further uh, fuel his base. So you've got this sort of polarization dynamic that Trump is running, which 
he thinks ultimately will benefit him by driving his opponents crazy and making them look unreasonable. And actually, we, we should take a break here. We're, we're chatting with uh, Professor Stephen Shear, um, the former professor of political science at Carleton College. We're going to keep on this because, I mean, the, the, the rally was just had so many dynamics to it in, in, in so many respects. So we'll, we'll take uh, – we've got to pay some bills, Steve, and then we'll uh, come back with more with you after this. It is 79 degrees in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy along with uh, former Carleton College political science professor Stephen Shear. Uh, Steve – there were so many aspects of that rally that were extraordinary. One of the, one of the dramas going into it was whether or not uh, Tim Pawlenty, the former governor of Minnesota, who of course is running for his old job, whether he was going to show up at this rally because he famously said of President Trump after that Access Hollywood tape came out, and remember this, that was in late October of 2016, right before the election. Right. He said that he was unfit and unhinged, okay, which is <laughs> – you know, then then yeah. then Trump wins. Yeah. Um. So he didn't go, but he sent his lieutenant governor. Or, you know, he sent his lieutenant governor candidate, who was the current lieutenant governor. It gosh, it's hard to explain Minnesota. Right? No, I, yeah, you know, I, lieutenant, I, lieutenant governor Michelle Feshbach. He sent her. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um. And, and then um, the endorsed candidate Jeff Johnson, uh, who is a big Trump supporter was on his way to the rally, and in the end, Jeff Johnson never spoke at the rally. Mm-hmm. And President Trump gives a huge shout-out to Lieutenant Governor Michelle Fishbach, saying you're in a great race and you're going to do well or whatever, which is virtually, in my view, an endorsement of, of Tim Pawlenty. Correct. Uh, um, yeah. w- w- what, what are your thoughts about this? Because I, I was just kind of like, did I hear that right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I think uh... – Trump uh, uh, Trump sets a high priority on Minnesota. He wants to win, and he's willing to uh, – if Pawlenty will stay out of his way, he won't get in Pawlenty's way. I think the White House believes that Jeff Johnson is, uh, is not a promising candidate in that it would be very difficult for him to win the primary, much less the November election. So I think these sort of, sort of cold-blooded political calculations lie behind Trump's behavior. And, you know, but what impact do you think that has? I mean, I've not talked to the Johnson people, but it, it, it has to have been just a humiliating yeah, blow. It, it, it's a big, uh, a big negative for the Johnson campaign because, um, you know, he's up against a former governor who has about ten times the amount of campaign funds that Johnson oh, does. Yeah, it's uh, – it's, it's, uh, Governor – Former Governor Pawlenty is is a fundraising machine. I mean, yeah. he's he's really yeah. has an extraordinary amount of money. Um, is this? Do you think this will translate into the votes for that August fourteenth primary? That, that's another topic we need to get into. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you, how much of how much of a boost for Tim Pawlenty is this? Well, I think it's important in that it's uh, well, he's avoided. A, a big problem, you know, and we often sort of understate that in politics, but a big problem would be if the president came out and lashed at him in the state. Didn't happen. In fact, he endorsed him in an indirect way by uh, his shout out to uh, Michelle Fishbach, the running mate. So uh, the absence of disaster is often a great success. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good, I like that. I'll have to borrow that. (laughs) And that is, I think, what happened for Pawlenty this week. (laughs) <laughs> right. Okay. Because it, it was it, it was unexpected and and something that was um, a little different. Um, 
uh, of of all the Republicans, another prominent Republican who wasn't there, and I, you know, I want to make some notes here because I do want to talk about this August fourteenth primary. Yeah. Um, you know, in our next half hour, because it's not a lot of people vote in that August primary, and there's a lot at stake. Mm-hmm. Um, what? Um, uh, let's let's talk about another prominent Republican that wasn't there. It was not there, and that is Congressman Eric Paulson. And you did have um, Congressman Emmer and Congressman Lewis, the only two other Republican congressmen, uh, with the president. They got shout-outs. They stood on stage with him. They shook his hand. Paulson's not there. Um, what are your thoughts about that? Well, Hillary Clinton won Paulson's district by a substantial amount. Uh, note that Trump won Emmer's district by a substantial amount, and that Trump uh, had a very close race with uh, Hillary Clinton in uh, Jason Lewis's district. So uh, you've got very different dynamics across those districts. And what Paulson's trying to do is uh, keep his Republican support in a district that has the potential to flip uh, to the Democrats and has been targeted nationally by the Democratic Party position. And uh, what I think he's trying to do in this awkward position is adopt a low key towards the White House in the hope that that will position him well for November. Um, And is this something, I mean, he, Congressman Paulson, and you're absolutely right about, I think think, uh, Hillary Clinton won that third district, I think by about 10 percentage points, but Congressman Paulson, who obviously is a Republican, beat a very well-known, mm-hmm. highly regarded state senator, Terry Bonoff, by, I think, 15 percentage points. Um, he's got a very well-funded uh, campaign opponent in Dean Phillips, who has been working very, very hard. And people also have pointed out to me that Terry Bonoff didn't get into the race until well into 2016, which mm-hmm. I had forgotten. Um, and it's, it is rated a toss-up in the Cook Political Report. Your, your thoughts about... Is that viable, or does Paulson come out ahead? Oh, I, I think uh, I don't think it's a toss-up. Uh, when you have a district that you won by uh, double digits last cycle, uh, while the national ticket of the other party was winning <laughs> your district, uh, you're in a pretty good position. And so I would not uh, say it's a safe Republican district, but I would give the edge to Paulson. Okay, well, that that is something that I and I think you know something. I've talked to a number of political experts, and and they all say exactly, exactly what what you just said. Yeah, I mean the numbers really don't show that it's uh, uh, you know that it's a dead heat. I mean uh, Paulson's record as a vote getter in that district uh, is really impressive. All right, we're going to take a quick break, Steve, uh, for uh, some news, um, some weather, excuse me, and. Uh, pay some bills. When we come back, I do want to talk about this August 14th primary, which is uh, right in the middle of when everybody in Minnesota is kind of checked out and really enjoying one of the best months of the entire year. And they don't go to the polls a lot and vote, but there is so much at stake, especially uh, when it comes to this attorney general's race and the governor's race. So uh, let's take a quick break. We'll give you some weather, uh, pay some bills, and we'll have more with Stephen Shear after this. It is 8.34 in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy, along with uh, Professor Stephen Shear, talking politics. Uh, let's talk about this August 14th primary. I can't really recall. I, perhaps you have to go back to 2010 when Mark Dayton was running and you had Margaret Anderson Keller, the Speaker of the House, who was the endorsed Democratic candidate uh, running. And, of course, Dayton won. Dayton bypassed the endorsing convention uh, there was a lot at stake there. There's there's even more at stake and more uncertainty this time around, don't you think? 
Oh, I think so. Uh, there's just <laughs> you look at particularly on the DFL side. Uh, there's so many races. Um, you know, you have um, five uh, five major candidates in um, the fifth congressional district. You have five in the eighth congressional district. You have at least four major candidates running for attorney general. You have three major tickets running for governor. I've never seen uh, such a combination of competitive races on one side in a primary like this. Right. And as I said, I mean, I remember that one because I I remember I was at Dayton headquarters in August of of 2010. But so much at stake. Uh, Why don't we begin with this governor's race? Because you had this extraordinary situation where Aaron um, Murphy, Mm -hmm. uh, State Representative Aaron Murphy, gets the endorsement, which was a surprise. Then she yeah. picks Representative Aaron May Quaid, uh, you know, who was, I think, the, the first openly gay uh, lieutenant governor candidate that, that I can recall. Yes. Uh, and then suddenly you have uh, – and obviously you've got Tim Walls, who is a powerhouse, who's running with uh, Representative Peggy Flanagan. And suddenly you have uh, Lori Swanson, the <laughs> attorney general, who didn't get the endorsement uh, for attorney general – Suddenly announcing she's running for governor and she's gotten Rick Nolan to come out of his intended retirement. How about that? I mean, <laughs> I, I, I'd like your thoughts. I mean, if you can handicap that one for me, Steve, I, I, I'd um, appreciate it. You know, I think this is very difficult to handicap. Uh, and here's why. When you look at the Democratic primary, I think you can expect heavy turnout in two areas of the state. First, the 5th Congressional District, where you have a competition to replace Keith Ellison. Uh, as the Democratic nominee, and then also the 8th Congressional District, where you have uh, five candidates running uh, to replace Rick Nolan as the Democratic nominee. Uh, So those areas should get very high turnout. Uh, What does that do for the governor's race? It's very hard to tell. Uh, To the extent that strongly liberal Twin Cities voters dominate the primary. I would tend to think that that would help the endorsed candidates. But here's the problem for the endorsed candidates, for the errands. They have no money. <laughs> right. You know, and they're running statewide, and they're not well-known outside right. of their districts. Those are huge impediments because the single most important thing in a race like this, in a primary contest, is name recognition. They don't have it. Tim Waltz has some of it. Laura Swanson has a lot of it. And that, if I, if there's one thing you need, it's name ID, and Lori Swanson is the only candidate who really has a huge amount of it. And and does and you know I remember about that 2010 primary um, back you know when uh, Governor Dayton or he was then candidate Dayton mm-hmm. uh, bypassed the endorsing convention. He's running against uh, Speaker Margaret Anderson Kelleher, who does have the endorsement, and he had picked a. a then candidate Dayton had picked Yvonne Pretner Solon, right. who of course is from Duluth, mm-hmm. and there was a huge as his running mate, and there was a big turnout in Duluth, and they they won on that basis. I mean, yes. it was the Duluth votes that counted. I mean, is that could that repeat itself? Yes, it could. And I also think uh, one thing to keep in mind about that 2010 race is that Dayton, you know, had served as a state auditor. He had served as a U.S. senator. It's hard to think of a name in Minnesota that not that is. Better known than Dayton, and he had a huge name identification advantage as well as as good funding in that primary. Uh, 
and so in terms of your you're saying this is a tough one to handicap because of all those factors handicap but if swanson gets enough money uh she has the name identification to possibly win this race. And one factor, too, is that I think in the past the turnout has, has varied between in this August primary. And they had to move the primary to August mm-hmm. because of federal laws requiring a certain amount of time to allow absentee ballots to be sent to our troops, right. which is obviously very important. Most states have moved their primary back to June, which I think mm-hmm. makes a lot more sense. But. Yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm not in charge here. Um, you know, in, in terms of um, uh, the the turnout for this this primary, though, historically, I think it's only been between ten and fifteen percentage points. So, getting out the vote is, is critical. And I know that a lot of the candidates, all the DFL candidates, are certainly going to be marching in the gay pride parade tomorrow. Oh, sure. Uh, because you know, gays, you know, lesbians, transgender, uh, the LGBTQ mm-hmm. uh, community is relatively small percentage, but they vote yes. uh, in high numbers, and they're overwhelmingly Democratic. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of uh, Representative Aaron Murphy, one thing that struck me was I feel like she's worked harder. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I think when I talk to people in, you know, Little Falls, I mean, she's been there two times um, or, or Moorhead. It, it just feels like she's really been out there. Uh, hitting, you know, and, and working it and getting these kinds of endorsements. Um, yet she's running with somebody who is from the metro area and doesn't have that connection yeah. to outstate. Yeah, you. that's a very metro-centric ticket. And uh, th- what I have heard is that she had originally hoped to run as the endorsed candidate on a unity ticket with one of the other major candidates for governor running for lieutenant governor. That didn't come about, and so Aaron May Quaid was uh, was the alternative approach. Uh, but it's difficult to see how that how you get name identification out state if you are from a relatively small constituency in the Twin Cities. I mean, these are state representatives, you know, and that's a, that's a very defined and limited constituency in the metro. So I think they have big problems in greater Minnesota, and they're going to need more resources in order to overcome those problems. Okay. Let's talk about the other domino <laughs> effect, <laughs> which is, of course, this extraordinary and, – and he will be a guest on, on the show I do at WCCO Sunday morning, 1030 a.m. – this extraordinary situation with Congressman Keith Ellison giving up a seat he could have had for the rest of his life. Yes. I mean it, there's, there's no doubt about it. I mean this is, this is – I think – I saw once that it was the second most Democratic district in the country, if that's possible. Well, it's a Democratic advantage on average of 26 points. 26 points. Okay. <laughs> that, that's, is, it, is it really that high? Yeah. Okay. Well, as I, as I was saying, he could have had this he's in his mid-50s, great health, a, a prominent role in Washington. Um, he's the deputy chair of the Democratic National Committee. Uh, he's one of the most progressive, you know, uh, mm-hmm. members of Congress. He, I mean, how, how unusual a move is that? Well, it is an unusual move, but I think it tells us two things. One, he has big policy ambitions, and I think he would like to use the attorney general office to pursue those policy ambitions. And second of all, I think he's gotten quite frustrated being in the minority in the U.S. House. 
where when you're in the minority party in the U.S. House, you have very, uh, very few opportunities to pursue your policy objectives, particularly because Ellison being on the left has almost nothing in common with the majority party in terms of policy. So you put all that together, and I think he's ready for a new job. I think he is, absolutely. I think a lot of people are sort of scratching their heads. I mean, can he win a statewide race? That is a really good question. It will depend. Well, first of all, in the primary, he has advantages because he has multiple opponents, none of whom are particularly well-known. And because he has vacated the 5th District, the 5th District will have a heavy turnout in the primary. Yeah. They'll be voting Ellison for attorney general. So I think he is favored in the primary. The problem is in November. Right. Um, And and the uh, Republican is less well-known. I don't think that there's been a Republican attorney general since – remember Skip Humphrey? Since 1971. That's a long time. And and remember, this this is a position that um, Walter Mondale held, I believe. Yeah, and Uh, Skip Humphrey. Skip Humphrey. So there's there's a rich tradition there. Mm -hmm. But um, he also has – you know, and and there's there's – a lot of very qual- well qualified candidates, you know, on the Democratic side. Right. Um, right. But the, and then you get to the fifth district because the other dominoes and it's it's played out again and again. Um, where you've got Representative Ilhan Omar, um, who got the endorsement, uh, and, and you know that people in in the Somali American community are going to turn out heavily for her. Mm-hmm. And you've got, uh, I guess. Senator Patricia Torres Ray, who's highly regarded mm-hmm. uh, as as a prominent uh, DFL uh, state senator, and you've got Representative Deb Hillstrom, mm-hmm. who is also um, you know a very well regarded um, you know state legislator, and Margaret Kelleher, and Margaret Kelleher, the former <laughs> speaker. So it's it's just that that's that's a big one too. Does does the DFL endorsement help? Yes. Oh, it would in a crowded field very definitely. And I think we also have to remember this as me that uh, the 5th District really distinguished itself when Martin Sabo retired by picking Keith Ellison. He became the first Muslim uh, Muslim member of the U.S. House. Now they have a chance to uh, put in the first Somali immigrant Muslim member of the House. And that may appeal to a lot of DFL activists in the the 5th District. Uh, so that obviously is something that, that is significant. Well, listen, let's go. Um, we do have to take another quick break, but I would like to kind of hit on uh, some of these other districts, uh, the, the second congressional district, uh, the first we haven't talked about. Uh, also, the, I, I find it interesting, the seventh congressional district, uh, which I believe is a plus 12 Republican, still yeah. is a Democratic member of Congress. And where is Donald Trump going this week? To Fargo, which has a big TV audience in that district. Um, so let's take a quick break. More with Stephen Shear after this on News Radio 830 WCCO. Good evening, folks. Esme Murphy with you. Um, listen, we have to change gears here, and I want to, my, I want to apologize to Professor Stephen Shear uh, because we were going to continue the conversation with him, but there is some developing news that we do need to share with you. Uh, it's important news. Um, I'm quoting my friends from WCCO Television who I've been talking to because – uh, I will be working on that newscast as soon as I get off here. Uh, I'll be anchoring 6 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. tomorrow. Here is what has happened. Um, police, Minneapolis police, uh, including the police chief, uh, Madeira Arredondo, says that there was a deadly officer-involved shooting early Saturday, early tonight, in North Minneapolis. Now, this happened at the 4800 block Bryant Avenue North. 
Uh, police say that a 911 call came in just before 6.30 in which the call gave a detailed description of the suspect who was firing a handgun. This is a very populated area, a very crowded area. Uh, again, this is 6.30 on a very nice uh, evening that a lot of people are presumably outside. Um, a second 911 call gave similar details. So you had two witnesses there who were saying that there was a person firing a gun in a residential area in North Minneapolis. Um, officers arrived at the scene, and this this report is coming from our friends at WCCO Television. There was a foot chase that ensued, leading to the suspect being shot. He was pronounced dead at the scene. Um, at least uh, five city blocks have been covered in crime scene tape due to the length of the foot chase. Uh, police say the responding officers were wearing body cameras at the time of the shooting. And I know that that has been an issue before. Uh, so presumably there will be body camera v- video of this shooting. Uh, the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension is in charge of the investigation. That's because uh, Minneapolis police are the ones who shot this individual. But anybody out there listening uh, who has any information about this or if you are in that area, this is a pretty big area of North Minneapolis that is roped off. Um, we'd like to hear from you. Let me give you our phone number, 651 989 one eight six six nine eight nine nine two two six. A lot going on here. Uh, the police chief Madeira Arredondo was on the scene, uh, and he was also um, on the scene with, with a police spokesperson. Uh, there is a, a very large police presence there. But again, two witnesses say that this man was armed and he was uh, shooting this weapon in a residential area at six thirty. So, if anybody does have any information, if you have concerns. Um, Please call us, 651-989-9226. Also, in the past few months, what has happened since the shooting of Justine Damon, she was the unarmed Australian woman uh, who was shot and killed by a Minneapolis police officer almost a year ago. It was in July of 2017. You you may remember the detail in that case that had uh, everyone concerned and resulted in a change in uh, body camera policy was that the two officers were wearing body cameras, but they didn't have them on at the time of the shooting. And so there still remain a lot of questions. We do have a a Minneapolis police officer who has been charged uh, with third-degree murder in Justine Damon's case. So these two officers, and we believe that there are two officers, were in fact uh, wearing body cameras and presumably they were on. I know that there are penalties now for not having those body cameras on. So we do want to recap. Uh, we do know that uh, Minneapolis police are saying that they shot and killed an armed man uh, at about 6.30 at night in North Minneapolis. Uh, the investigation is continuing. Uh, we're getting some notes from my friends at WCCO-TV. Uh, if anybody has any comments or thoughts, uh, please uh, feel free to give us a call, 651-989-9226, 1-866-989-9226. Love to hear from anybody who was in the area. I know that we do have uh, you know many listeners in that area. And I can try and check uh, social media as well. But again, this information coming very quickly from Minneapolis police. Uh, there was apparently an extensive foot chase Uh, And that area remains roped off. Um, But again, police confirming that they have shot and killed a man who was armed, a man that two witnesses say was firing a weapon. Um, 
we, of course, will continue to follow this uh, breaking news story uh, and see exactly um, what more the police have to say uh, about that tonight. I know that they've had at least two two news conferences. I know WCCO Television will have full coverage at 10 o'clock tonight. Um, but obviously this is uh, comes on the heels of some very controversial police shootings in our area. Certainly the Justine Damon case, uh, headlines around the world on that case. Um, you also had the shooting of... Uh, Jamar Clark a couple of years ago. That certainly drew dramatic headlines here in the Twin Cities. And then you had the shooting that also uh, prompted headlines around the world of Philando Castile uh, just over a year and a half ago. That was uh, by St. Anthony Police. And the aftermath of that video in something that was so shocking to so many, was actually streamed on Facebook Live. Um, We do not know at this point and have not yet seen on Twitter uh, or Facebook if there are actual videos. And and I have to think that there will be videos uh, from the community. I mean, let's face it, everybody's got a cell phone these days. Everybody's got, um, you know, a way to take their own video, which in some ways I think is, is a A good thing because it it helps us understand exactly what happened. But the key here right now is that uh, Minneapolis police are saying that these officers who were involved in this were wearing body cameras. So I think that's something that that, that is very important here. Uh, But again, uh, if you're just joining us, uh, there is an officer-involved shooting that occurred earlier this evening in Minneapolis Police have shot and killed a man they described as armed. There are, according to police, two witness reports that the man was firing the weapon before police arrived. There was an extensive foot chase. The officers were wearing body cameras, uh, and the man was shot and killed. Uh, We do not have any other extensive details here, uh, but uh, WCCO Radio, WCCO Television will continue to have details uh, I don't know if, uh, Shaletta, you're seeing anything more on social media here um, as I try and find out some more myself. Yeah, Esme, what I'm seeing is a lot of the viewers in that neighborhood are saying how um, basically afraid they are. Um, right. And, and we've, we're seeing pictures. Uh, one woman, Yolanda, says, hey, you know, this is my mother's front porch. This is a crime right. scene where uh, police have shot and killed a man. And... Um, right. you know, I, I'm afraid we're afraid to come out of my home. My mother's crying. And so I, I, I've reached out to her to see if she can give us a call and let us know what she's seeing. Right. Well, that that would be very helpful. And again, this is a residential neighborhood. Uh, this is a neighborhood where presumably at 630 on, on a beautiful evening, uh, you have a lot of people outside, presumably a lot of children outside. And you have two witnesses who called 911, who called police to the scene to say they were concerned about a man with a gun uh, and, and that, the, that the man was actually firing the weapon uh, into the air. So uh, that's something that obviously is a source of tremendous concern. And uh, a lot of people in that community obviously are living with this kind of violence uh, on a regular basis. Uh, But we probably do need to take a break here at the top of the hour. Um, WCCO Radio will have continuing coverage of this developing story. Again, uh, Minneapolis police confirming that they shot and killed a man they described as armed, a man that, according to police, 
two witnesses said was firing a weapon in a residential area in North Minneapolis at about 6.30 this evening. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.